0: Hello, and welcome to the latest MoneyMakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. I'm delighted to be joined today by Tim Price, the fund manager and market commentator, who some of, some of you may already know well from his popular newspaper columns in Money Week and The Spectator. Our topic today is how best to invest your money in the unprecedented zero interest rate world in which we live. When bank deposits and government bonds, once the risk free assets which millions relied on for income, yield next to nothing, and central banks around the world are busy creating money left, right and centre in a desperate, but so far not very successful attempt to breathe life back into their stuttering economies. Tim has just completed a book called Investing Through the Looking Glass*, in which he analyses critically, uh, perhaps I should say very critically, how we all came to be in this unusual state of affairs. He then goes on to put forward his own ideas, drawing on his 20 years of experience as a private client investment manager, of how investors can best adapt to these new and unorthodox conditions. In the first part of this two-part series, we discuss the build-up to the crisis, who was responsible, and why, as a result, we are facing what he calls, quote, the mother and father of financial accidents waiting to happen. In the second part, we will go on to discuss the three investment solutions he believes offers investor the best hope of surviving the tough years that lie ahead. So, Tim, let's start with what your thesis is. Essentially, as we all know, we've had the financial crisis uh, and we have a problem with debt, but this has now become an endemic global problem. I think that's where we start from, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, the, the reason behind writing the book, uh, which, which was a joy to, to write in many respects, though the subject matter perhaps less so, less, uh, less joyful to write about, um, was that two thousand? The events of two thousand eight, specifically the failure of Lehman Brothers, two thousand and eight was um, certainly for me the most challenging year of my career, of my twenty five years so far career in investment. And I guess my response to that was, uh, my reaction was this: this has become like the, the biggest who done it in history. How on earth did we end up in this colossal mess? So firstly, who are the guilty parties? How did we get here? And is there a way through the fog? And your conclusion on the guilty parties is it's a bit like uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Murder on the Orient Express. Everybody did it. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read (laughs) the book or seen the film, but everybody did it. So, yeah, it depends where you want to sort of, you know, where your own biases lie. But for me, trying to take a kind of forensic view of this thing... I don't have a dog in the fight, but I, I one of the first culprits I'd, I'd suggest, and it's probably less contentious to, to me making this statement today, would be e- economics itself. Economics is a supposed discipline, it's a supposed science, when it's actually all just bollocks.
0: So the professionals in this game have failed, but the, the the point is that the professionals are well represented in in other places as well, in the institutions that. Uh, that have a role in the financial system. So in
1: central banks, they've so ter- been taken over
0: by economists. Exactly.
1: So in terms of how we got to, let's say, the, the tipping point, for me, and it's one I cite quite early in the book. And credit to Andrew Ross Sorkin, because he, he, he cited this in his own analysis of the, the crash, which was too big to fail. And the version I've got, which I think was probably the first edition, had a picture of a dinosaur on the front, which I think is meaningful, because that's a, an excellent you know, analogy for where, where conventional banking now finds itself you know, uh, dinosaurs just before the meteor hits, if you like. And Andrew Rostock cites this this conference call that Jamie Dimon had, teleconference call from his home, um, his private office. He's the boss of... Uh, he's the boss of J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan. And he's, he's having a conference call with his board the, the Saturday morning of the weekend that Lehman Brothers failed. So Lehman Brothers basically filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection on the Sunday of this weekend, but he's having the conference call the day before that. And he starts this conference call with his, with his board, basically saying something along the lines of, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to experience one of the most extraordinary periods in U.S. financial history. We should be prepared for Lehman Brothers filing, i.e. for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. We should be prepared for Merrill Lynch filing. We should be prepared for AIG filing. We should be prepared for Morgan Stanley filing. Pause. We should be prepared for Goldman Sachs filing. And then it just says there was a sharp intake of breath on the other end of the line. And you're thinking, "He's being... Oh bitten. my god!" I mean, that that is so. For anyone that's uh, unaware of the, the sort of significance of that quote, what what Jamie Dimon was anticipating, uh, not necessarily expecting, but but sort of briefing his staff to anticipate, was an extinction level event for Wall Street. Now, as we all know, that didn't it didn't go down that way. So Lehman Brothers either was allowed to fail or they couldn't rescue it in time or was deliberately let go. Uh, Again, historians can argue that. But whatever whatever the fate of Lehman Brothers, whether that was deliberate or inadvertent, what clearly then happened was that the authorities, the monetary authorities, the major central banks, specifically the US Federal Reserve, mobilised heaven and earth to ensure there wouldn't be another failure. And I would, so effectively in my own thought process and my own experience, I would date, this let's say, the fever point, the peak fever point of the crisis to that moment when you know, we, there, was a, there was a fork in the road. We, one, of, one of the directions, one path would have led to an, a, a practically extinction level event on Wall Street and the city and global finance. And the other was the road that was taken, which was bailout, bailout, bailout. And the point I would humbly submit to anybody is, that was the road we took. Are we any better off for having taken that road? I would answer, absolutely not.
0: Because the point is we're still living with the consequences of that decision. But having said that, I mean, many people would say having a kind of wipe out of, 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 of the entire Wall Street uh,
1: City kind of uh, uh, smartest dogs uh, would have been a very uncomfortable experience. Sure. It? I mean, in the same way that 1929 to 1932 was uncomfortable. Um but again, this is a a, a a point that we I do discuss a little in in the book. There is a there is still some debate. I mean, there's a debate about everything that happens in in our world that everything involving human beings because we are flawed flawed creatures. But there is debate even now as to whether the way I was taught about the Great Depression, for example, at school was you had this terrible crash. Everyone knows about the crash. Uh, there's some debate of what caused the crash, but let's move on. We had the stock market crash the Dow Jones Industrial Average between 1929 and 1932 fell by 89%, an unparalleled decline in any major market uh, over a fairly short period of time, uh, worse than what we had in 2008 and and the years thereafter. And in the aftermath of the crash, U.S. GDP fell by 10% the following year, it then fell by 10%, and it then fell by 10% the third year after that. That, again, is unprecedented. Now everyone's aware of the crude facts, but there's a lot of debate over whether what Roosevelt did as part of the New Deal was actually uh, actually helped matters. And you know, I, I don't claim to have all the answers. Again, I'm not a, I'm not an economist and I'm not an economic historian. But there's some debate, particularly advocated by the so-called Austrian school, and they would say, well, if you find yourself in a crisis, the first thing you do is do not perpetuate the crisis. So there's some argument that what Roosevelt did after the crash was perpetuate the depression, doing exactly the same thing that our authorities have done since Lehman Brothers failed, namely try and keep wage rates high, try and keep everybody as far as possible employed. So employ minimum wages, uh, basically uh, slash interest rates, uh, try and reflate, and it's basically a bailout of the least worthy uh, entities out there, be they banking entities or any other. And so Murray Rothbard, for example, in his study, um, America's Great Depression, says if you want to perpetuate a depression, you do exactly the same things that Roosevelt did. And effectively, it was the Second World War and not the New Deal that, that rescued the US economy. And that, if that is true, that's a very sobering and a rather bleak uh, conclusion to come to.
0: Right. But just on that point, I mean, nobody would want to have a rerun of the Great Depression
1: with People with soup kitchens. Obviously, we have safety nets now, and so on. Well, well, I, well my really? response would be, well, what's the periphery? What, what are young people in the periphery of the eurozone experiencing now? If you've got countries with forty or fifty percent youth unemployment, you know they may not be called soup kitchens, but they're there in all but name. So the situation is bad, very bad, and and the point you're trying to make,
0: I think, is is uh, is that uh, the consequences of of the big crash uh, have not yet played out, and the, the way that the policymakers have responded to that crisis are actually making things worse. Yeah, the metaphor
1: that every, or the analogy, the, 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 the phrase that everyone has used has been kicking the can down the road. So what the last seven or eight years, which I would say have basically been lost, missed opportunities, all they brought us is, you know, and the McKinsey study of a few years ago uh, rather shockingly revealed that far from this myth of austerity that we've all been spoon fed by the UK government for the last few years. There's been no austerity. There's been no deleveraging. There's been no paying down of this colossal debt mountain that was uh, accumulated over a 40-year period. Um, so in that sense, you can trace the problems back to 1971 and uh, Nixon taking the dollar off gold. But that's a kind of separate debate. But in terms of the, the more recent period, there's been no austerity to speak of. There's been no deleveraging. There's $57 trillion more debt in the system now than there was in '08. This is... A the mother of all financial accidents waiting to happen. And all that the authorities did do through their agents, the central banks, who I would certainly identify as, you know, primus inter pares among the guilty uh, men, um, just by time, but by nothing else. That doesn't
0: sound like a very good world in which to be thinking about investing your money.
1: It's a disaster. I mean, as a, an asset allocator, it, it, it I find it virtually impossible. In a world of not just zero interest rates, but negative interest rates. The, the idea, uh, the simple idea that you could have a world in which negative interest rates exist is just baffling to the rational mind. It's utterly incomprehensible. It's unconscionable, and yet it persists. So there are so many extraordinary things happening, and my heart goes out, quite genuinely goes out, to anybody who's in this, which is nearly all of us, is practically all of us, anybody who's forced to try and steward their savings and investments through this period, how can one invest sensibly, rationally, in a world in which, firstly, you think, okay, what's the low-risk option? Sticking money in the bank. Okay, well, that's going to cost you. You're now going to have to pay to have money on deposit. That is clearly insanity. It's nonsense on stilts. And then, you okay, okay, well, in conventional financial theory, the next step up from cash deposits is you know, short-term or medium-term, say, government bonds. Well, in $16 trillion of that stuff, they're trading with a negative yield. So you're guaranteed to lose money even before the impact of inflation in holding this rubbish to term. So the authorities, by accident or by design, I think it's by design, have basically invalidated half of the investable universe or more than half of the investable universe of assets through monetary policy. Um, You can perhaps sense that I don't think this is a particularly good idea. Uh, And they've done it on purpose. I mean, this is... If we look
0: back at historical examples of big debt build-ups, notably the two world wars, the most famous examples, I suppose, Uh, and certainly after the Second World War, it was a deliberate policy of what we've come to call financial repression. You try and keep... uh, You keep an absolute
1: lid on interest rates. You keep keep an absolute lid on what people can earn.
0: And ultimately, that falls below the rate of inflation. uh, And 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 you you you
1: you inflate your way out.
0: And you inflate your way out. So what they've been trying to do is they've been trying to inflate away the, the huge debt mountain that
1: everybody has accumulated around the world and, and so far it hasn't not worked <laughs> you couldn't make this up really could you I mean if you gave it to Hollywood they say, I'm sorry this yeah. script is too implausible for us to make a film out of so interest rates have come down virtually to, to nothing at the shorter end anyway of the, of the market uh,
0: and now we are seeing some signs of inflation picking up certainly in this country so this is a very very uh, in, a, in a world where there's very limited growth um, and therefore the other way you can do it is by growing your economy very fast you can uh, nominal GDP exceeds the cost of your debt, you can you can work your way out of uh, the debt problem. That doesn't seem to be an option. So as you say, investors are left with a very, very tough landscape in which to operate. Yeah, let's say a limited palette of choices. A limited palette of choices. But having said that, how does one deal with the fact of what you say to people who say, well, actually, since Lehman went, went bust, we made very good returns from our shares. We made very good returns from our bonds. We made out of money out of everything so far. Looking backwards, mm. the problem,
1: as you're about to say, is that well, actually, that's as good as it gets. It's well, really get I mean, who knows? I mean, he, I certainly wouldn't. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't say I have any conviction, strong conviction, about what what happens in the immediate future. But I would suggest that the past cannot conceivably be prologue to the future. So we're just coming off the back of. Uh, for example, in interest rates, uh, a bubble, arguably a bubble in bond markets, in credit, that's lasted certainly for my professional career. It goes back to 1982. Um, so, a 30-year period, 30-plus-year period, in which interest rates have only ever gone down. And the policy response of central banks has only ever been to cut rates in a crisis. So, nobody, I would suggest, nobody, there is nobody alive in a dealing room who's ever seen a prolonged bear market in interest rates, well, get a load of what may be ahead.
0: And when they do happen, they tend to last quite a long time. 30 years is a normal... uh, Well, again, to
1: to, to, to go biblical, I mean, we've had 30 plus years of good times. So if if, if the Bible has anything to say about this, then we should expect to maybe have a prolonged period of not so good times.
0: So I suppose before we just get on to the solutions that you're uh, recommending that investors uh, pursue... I should just make one further question, I suppose, about your analysis of where the world is, and that is the question whether policymakers are actually going to stop doing what they're doing, uh, or whether they're going to try more and more of the same, which has been their policy so far. So, in other words, we've had QE, we have money creation on on an epic scale uh, with very limited effects and some negative side effects. Do you think they're going to go to what what some people call helicopter money, which is where they're Essentially, the central
1: banks are printing money. Just to bypass the, the commercial banking system and mail us all perhaps time-dated checks directly. Quite possibly. I mean, I can certainly see it happening. But there comes a point at which there's, there's a phrase in medicine called a, an iatrogenic illness. And an, an iatrogenic illness is an illness that's caused by the doctor. So in other words, the, the iatrogenic doctor ends up killing his patients directly as a result of, his, you know, of what he's prescribing them. And I, that, that is the analogy I'd make in relation to central banking, that perhaps this, this process started with central bankers added, acting out of the best of motives, trying to shore up the health of the banking and financial system. So in other words, the immediate uh, bailouts and the immediate iterations of QE in 08-09. In well, that was, I'm sorry, but that's eight years ago. So the idea that we're in some kind of a financial emergency, yeah, I, find, I find that a little bit of a stretch now. Um, but clearly, financial markets. People in financial markets love QE. They love stimulus. They love markets that only ever go up. So, you know, I, I don't expect the book, this book, to make any friends in on Wall Street or in the city. But that's fine. So I don't have any anyway.
0: <laughs> that concludes part one of this two-part podcast series. In part two, I discuss with Tim the three investment solutions that he believes offers investors a relatively safe way to preserve and grow their capital in these difficult financial times more details at uh, our website www.money-makers.co